Thanks for listening to the RTS Washington Faculty Podcast. I'm Timo Sazo, Director of Admissions and Executive Producer and Editor of this podcast. On this episode, the third in our summer short series, Dr. Scott Redd and Dr. Tommy Keene talk about Hebrew poetry. Scott, I know you've done a lot of work in uh, in Hebrew poetry and your, your dissertation, your first publication, in fact, was a fairly technical look at uh, constitutive postponement in biblical Hebrew. So uh, tell us a little bit about how to process Hebrew poetry and, you know, both both at the lay level and what's kind of going on. Yeah, so there's a kind of a cottage industry around the study of Hebrew poetry in Old Testament circles. And there's a lot of different schools of thought and they're competing and they're even sometimes somewhat passionate in their defenses. <laughs> Maybe even some might say disproportionately so um, in terms of what's at stake. But it's it's something that I was drawn to um, early on, actually in my MDiv uh, studies down at RTS Orlando, I got to study under um, Bruce Waltke and, and Mark Futado and Richard Pratt, and all of them were delving into this relatively newer approach to uh, biblical literature that was looking at the art, artistry of biblical literature, looking at the literary devices you know, from a kind of poetic analysis you know, perspective. And that really cued me in that there's something about the Bible that's, that's not merely um, theological or not just merely seeing the Bible as a mind that you can draw theological truth out of, but actually something that's very compellingly organized and and constructed and it's, it's even artistic and you know we we don't often talk about the artistry of scripture uh but i was really fascinated by that particularly as someone who's an english major in undergrad was very interested in writing uh, as a matter of fact that's what i thought my field was going to be when i got out of undergrad i came up to washington dc to try to get paid to write things and that really tapped into an interest of mine and so i went on to do my phd work as you said, in kind of a, a technical side of this, where you're looking at the Hebrew poetry and other cognate traditions of poetry, in other words, Ugaritic poetry and Babylonian poetry and others, and, and really trying to develop some kind of analysis as to what's going on uh, when Hebrew poetry is being written. And this might sound kind of strange to a modern audience, but you have to ask yourself the question, does someone writing poetry know they're writing poetry? Is, do, they, do they say, now I'm going to stop writing prose like something in Deuteronomy or you know, a, a receipt, which is actually what most of our ancient writing is. It's all receipts because people, of course, want to make sure they're getting a fair shake. Um, but you know, when you have someone writing in poetry, and the earliest poetry we have goes back to about 3200 BC, and it's a priestess, actually, in, uh, in, in Babylon, and she's, she's writing uh, worship material. Um, that's the earliest record that we have of it. And the question is, does she know? Did they know that they were doing something different? And the argument that I kind of engaged with was, it does seem like they know. It seems like there's a binary difference. Some people have this kind of common view that there's a range between poetry and prose. This is one of those things that people fight vociferously about. Um, I'm not going to do that. But I do have this view that there's a binary difference, that there's something that is poetry and there's something that is prose. And when you're writing poetry in the ancient world, uh, the author you know, has some realization that they're doing something different. Now, of course, we don't know what they're thinking. I can't get into their minds and we don't have any native speakers to tell us. 
But what we can do is we can look at what's happening in Hebrew poetry and we can point out the fact that, you know, this would never happen in prose. You know, this would, they, they're doing things here that they would never do over there. And, and the example that I often give when somebody asks is, you know, it just comes from the area of, of, of word order. You know, if someone came up to you and said, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand, you know, you'd probably go, okay, yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but you're doing something right now. And then when they say all other ground is shifting sand, then you go, okay, I know what you're doing. Right. You get basically you only need two lines to see that someone's speaking a little different. They're doing uh, they're talking in a different register. You know, if, if someone were to say, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Of course, things I say to you, Tommy, in the hall all the time. Um, you know, shall I compare these to a summer's day? They are more lovely and more temperate. You feel an English speaker feels the beats and the, the syllables and they instantly say, oh, something's going on here. I even say we kind of experienced this. If you've ever heard someone do spoken word or if you've heard certain homiletic traditions, particularly like those found in the African-American church, there's often a time where um, you suddenly realize that they're speaking in a poetic way. They're speaking in a metrical way. When the pastor, for instance, switches over from kind of normal homiletics to a rhythmic speech, you know, and, and you know, there's something we all know as humans, we know there's been a shift. And my dissertation is arguing that that's something that's happening even in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. And I focus in on this kind of one very specific thing, which is, again, it, it is word order. So it's like that on Christ, the solid rock, I stand question. You know, the fact that the verbs at the very end of that sentence is just weird. It's not normal English. We don't do that unless somebody had asked the question, what are you doing and where? And then I might answer with, on Christ, the solid rock, I'm standing. Okay. Maybe then you'd put those things in the front. But normal English would never have a verb in the last position. And the same is true in Hebrew poetry. Um, when you go through Hebrew poetry, you find at this alarming rate, the, I don't want to say normal word order, but the word order that you find in Hebrew, in kind of classical biblical Hebrew, which is a word order that's either... Uh, has the verb in the first or second position. And I would argue that that Hebrew is a verb first language, you know, uh, word or language. That again is also hotly contested. <laughs> but either way, either you believe it's a VSO, verb subject object is the way linguists talk about it, or an SVO, subject verb object order, whichever one you, you believe, you know that the verb shows up in the first or second position. But we suddenly find, for instance, in, in Hebrew poetry, the verbs are showing up in like the third and maybe even sometimes the fourth position. And that never happens in prose. And so what I did in my studies is I just went through this large corpus um, that was actually developed um, with one of my PhD professors named Michael O'Connor, who had actually written a book called Hebrew Verse Structure. So he's, he's, a, big, he's a big player in this world of Hebrew poetry. Uh, he passed away uh, while I was doing my studies with him, but was you know, very influential over me. And then another, another professor, Doug Gropp, who had, uh, who had done a good bit of work, a lot of it's unpublished, but really an amazing amount of work on Hebrew poetry. So I put together a corpus under their advice, and uh, it really covered poetry from the oldest poetry we have in the Bible to the latest, the newest poetry we have in the Old Testament. And it was meant to really reflect the whole poetic tradition that we find in scripture, partly because we wanted to see, hey, did they, did they do, was the early poetry different than the later poetry? And one of my findings was, no, interestingly, it's not. 
um, this seems like the, the poetic tradition, at least in terms of word order or constituent postponement, which is that technical term that, I, that you mentioned earlier, um, you know, it actually doesn't change very much. Mm, yeah. um, the earliest poetry, like the Song of Deborah or the Song of the Sea, to the late poetry that we have in, you know, for instance, Zephaniah, you know, or in, or in the Psalter, um, there's actually not that much change. Uh, and then another one of the major findings was that not only is it pretty stable throughout the poetic tradition of the scripture, and this is just, again, just in terms of, of word order. Um, the second finding was that it's interesting in Hebrew poetry, you find often a two line structures, or, or you might even put it, I put it this way. I say you have an A line and then you have the non A lines, and that can either be one non A line or it can be four non A lines, but usually there's an A line. Now there's the first line that says something. And then there's one or more lines after it that kind of respond to that thing whatever the A-line said, you know, and you would think perhaps that word order aberration, rather, or word order post, you know, that involves postponement that I'm talking about, like putting the verb at the end, you'd expect that that would show up in the non-A-lines because those are generally thought of as the marked lines versus the unmarked A-line. But interestingly, you don't, it's about 50-50, you know, mm. A-lines versus B-lines. And so again, it kind of, raises a question about what is going on with that, you know, two line or more structure that you find in Hebrew. And those are the major findings of my work. At the end of the day, it's one of those dissertations, you know, Tommy, you'll relate to, you know, people say there's two kinds of dissertations, those, those that change the world and those that are finished. And, and mine had a very nice, it, it was, this real benefit was that it had a really nice end date. Like I knew when I was done and yeah. that's when I had basically pulled together all of the examples in this corpus and, uh, and, and accounted for them. It strikes me that you, this is the kind of dissertation that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that because English poetry works the way it does, yeah. it's not the kind of thing that would show up in an English translation. Yeah. We have to, we have to, we're, we're it's incumbent upon the translator to put things in a correct English order. Yeah. So would we would we English readers see this in our in our translation, or is it something you really need the Hebrew to? Yeah, that's a good question. You really, I mean, to see this thing that I'm talking about, you really need the Hebrew. Yeah, partly because it's just something that if you're an, a VSO language like Hebrew, it feels weird. If you're an SVO language like English, it doesn't feel as weird. You know, even if they literally did it in the same word order. But of course, none of us would, no one would want to say that's what you should do. Now, there are some, there is, there is a kind of range though, in terms of how much you try to preserve poetic device in the translation. And that is kind of a distinction that you can make even between translations. So for instance, you know, I would argue something like the ESV in the line of the authorized version and the King James is trying to really, you know, reflect a kind of English poetic tradition. Interestingly, and a lot of people who think of the ESV as being more literal than the NIV, the NIV, at least the Psalter and the NIV, uh, actually had some really great, including Bruce Walke, one of my profs, had some really great Hebrew poetic scholars, and they tried to kind of preserve a little bit of that more ancient feel. A good example, though, I think of, a, of, a, of an exercise or an attempt to translate the Bible in a way that does communicate that artistic structure would probably be Robert Alter's, you know, the UC Berkeley professor Robert Alter's recent translation of uh, 
the Tanakh, uh, the Hebrew Bible, and it really is excellent. It's 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 a wonderful for those of you who are interested in literature and you maybe don't have the time to go learn Hebrew. Um, you know, grabbing Robert Alter's translation and reading it alongside your ESV or your NIV is is a great way to try to really kind of feel. Uh, the texture, to use Michael Fishbane, another Jewish scholar, he talks about the difference between the texture and the text. And we often read the Bible just looking at the text, and he says we need to stop and slow down and feel the texture. And and, and that's a good way of, of feeling the artistry of the ancient scripture. That's really helpful. I, that that struggle as a translator is always, yeah, it's present in prose, but poetry makes it all the more challenging. Yeah. I remember finding... Uh, for the first time, Dorothy Sayers' translation of of Dante, where she she actually rhymes the couplets. Uh, oh, interesting! Yeah, she 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 tries to pre- preserve the rhyming pattern from from Italian, and uh, which I can't even imagine. Yeah, as a translator trying to trying to accomplish that, it would be. Can you imagine? It'd be it would be fun to try, though. I, I I could never do the whole thing, but it'd be wonderful to try to do that with Hebrew poetry. And, and, and there's not so much rhyme, though there is rhyme, but to kind of work on the word order, the alliteration, and the consonants, you know, that you see show up there, um, it could be a really interesting endeavor. You know, another one, Seamus Haney did something like that with uh, Beowulf, and, and I love that idea of of trying to communicate the artfulness, just in part to help the modern day reader, you know, again, get the sense of the artfulness and the beauty of the scripture. Because, you know, talking about your texture idea, because that, the artistic aspect of poetry and, and, and I'd love to hear just like a final comment on this, the artistic aspect of the Hebrew poetry is part of its meaning. It's part of the way it's trying to communicate to us about the glory of God and our salvation. Well, perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised that in the kind of, you know, the Western tradition that's so influenced by rationalism <laughs> that that when we talk about inspiration, we're often talking about the words. You know, people talk about plenary, uh, you know, verbal inspiration, and we're thinking about the words and the the terms that are used and the in the semantics that's being communicated. But if you think about it, that also does communicate to or that 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 has implications for the artfulness of the text. And I think we sometimes miss that, and it's because we're looking for the doctrine, right? We want the theology, we want the we want the meaning, we want to look past the reference to the reference point. And uh, there's something about slowing down and, and enjoying the beauty of the holy scriptures. Mm-hmm.